0: Welcome to the FHS Undivided Podcast. How are you?
1: Hi, Alice. I'm so glad to know that it's called Undivided. That's wonderful. <laughs> um, I am doing okay. I've survived two weeks of school. How are you after after the beginning?
0: I'm doing well. Um I'm actually kind of enjoying being back in school. It gives me some more structure. Quarantine was kind of just this long stretch of fluid time, so
1: Yeah, I've been hearing that from a lot of students. I, I give surveys um pretty frequently and in, in attendance I have uh questions that are usually unrelated to course content that I ask and mm-hmm. a lot of my students saying that they're really happy to be back.
0: So
2: that's good, yeah,
0: yeah, so what have you been up to during quarantine? Ooh, um,
1: well, I thought I was going to have two art shows this fall, so I was working pretty hard to produce a bunch of paintings, um.
2: Mm-hmm
1: those art shows aren't happening because those venues aren't open um or at least they're not happening um anytime soon mm-hmm. so uh-huh. we'll see we'll see what happens with that but um you know it was good to do the painting anyway so i was making a lot of art reading a lot of books um a lot more reading than i've been able to do since i became a teacher um, walking swimming, and, oh, um, I can't believe I almost forgot this, but uh, I had a huge project this summer working on uh, some, some curriculum that Dr. Grisso and I received a grant uh, from Crystal Bridges to create. Actually, the grant is through Crystal Bridges, but it's called the um, Reese Fellowship, um, named... For uh, a donor who owns bookstores somewhere on the East Coast.
0: Nice. What kind of what kind of curriculum?
1: So our project centers around abstract expressionist works. Um, the mm-hmm. purpose of the actual fellowship is to uh, to use the collection of Crystal Bridges. So to mm-hmm. to make lessons for high school students that incorporate works from the Crystal Bridges collection of artwork, but also from their library resources. So mm-hmm. um, if it were a normal summer, we would have spent about a month in the library um, working on weekdays. Uh, but this way under COVID, we were able to go a few times and, and check out mm-hmm. books, but part worked remotely, but um the The whole abstract expressionist thing matters because when you go into an art museum, where do you see people looking the most confused? Typically, modern art, right? So, yeah, you your Jackson Pollock's, your Helen Frankenthaler's, Mark Roscoe. Some people just take to it naturally and have a kind of affinity for, um, either the color or the gesture or the grandiosity of the scale of the work, but, you know, there's Mm -hmm. a huge proportion of our population who looks at that stuff and wonders why is it in a museum or thinks I could do this or a child could do this. And so we thought it was important to help illuminate those works, um, which remain a little bit more mysterious to the general public. Um, And they're also really important, parts of the Crystal Bridges collection because that movement marks the beginning of the United States occupying the center of the
0: international art world.
2: Hmm.
0: I see. I see. So is it part history curriculum and part sort of art technicality curriculum?
1: Exactly. So we have lessons for U.S. history, world history, um, which includes um AP world, well, and AP US, um, as well as studio art and art history lessons. But we've also come up with some lessons for English classes, um, particularly English 10, English 12. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're hoping to incorporate that into the standard curriculum eventually for those classes? Um, I don't
1: know about Standard curriculum that would be pretty lofty. Um, (laughs) What what we've done though is create lessons that are that meet the standards that meet you know Common Core standards, our state standards for those courses, and would just be ready-made, really good quality ready-made lessons that teachers can use, and they would be especially useful for teachers who can actually take their students to Crystal Bridges, or, you know, in the area, at least a lot of students have the experience of visiting that museum, and so there's some familiarity there.
0: Yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to a time where we can actually go on field trips again and visit Crystal Bridges.
1: I know, but the virtual virtual tours are kind of nice. Like, one of the things that has come out of COVID that I really appreciate is all of these museums all over the world that I would love to visit on a regular basis have created these virtual tours so they're actually a whole lot more accessible to everyone even while they were less accessible physically to anyone.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And I think the same applies in other areas as well. In education in general, a lot of great insights and great conversations have been converted to virtual and posted on YouTube, um, accessible to the entire world, whoever has internet, that sort of thing. So I I think it's nice that we have some sort of record of great conversations and great teaching happening.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And when it comes to access and equity, um, I I see some, like, pretty lofty things, actually, on the horizon for this. Like, I think about how I've often been kind of torn between staying in Arkansas, which I love, or Mm -hmm. going to the East Coast, which is kind of where most of the art world in this country, you know, exists. And Mm -hmm. the more things go virtual, the less I am disadvantaged by my location and how cool yeah. would it be if you could go to graduate school with people from all over the world
2: exactly. and have
1: just sort of school experience or, you know, whatever level of school experience. So mm-hmm. I, see, I see it as a huge uh, opportunity for us. I know that that word has been, we've, we've been hearing the word opportunity a whole lot. Um, I just, that everybody
0: really does take the opportunities so on the topic of the future of education um, since we're here and since we sort of see the quarantine as a quote-unquote opportunity to develop new methods and you know transition an outdated system where do you see the future of education going uh, within the next year and also within maybe the next five or ten years
1: Wow, um well, I first of all think that and maybe you planted the seed when you were talking to me about another teacher's interest in having students learn at whatever pace they just do the learning instead of trying mm-hmm. to keep everybody up. I think that virtual lessons create a really great opportunity for that um. Mm-hmm. I mean, there will always be problems with that, because if everyone's kind of working at their own pace, then uh, that could get in the way in some cases of things like discussion. But I I think that ultimately, the most, the most important thing that's going to come out of this is that people are going to have to start learning. Students are going to have to start learning at a much earlier age how to manage their time wisely. And mm-hmm. those who do will find that they are much richer in time. And that's going to provide opportunity to excel with the things that you're most interested in, which may or may not be school related. You know, I think about the, there are plenty of students who get their work done quickly and feel like a lot of the time spent in, you know, regular traditional pre COVID school is just kind of mm-hmm. sitting and waiting. And if you could spend all of that time building something, um, I was going to say building a house, I guess it's
2: a high school student.
1: You know, you could, you could be constructing something or you could be writing a book or you could be just out hiking, exploring. Like there's so many great uses of time. And if anything, talking to my students since school has started this year I feel really reassured that they want to do meaningful things with their time. Mm-hmm. So that's one one potential um, positive consequence of, of this uh, situation when it comes to long-term changes to education. Um, yeah,
0: I definitely feel that. And especially, it, it's kind of counterintuitive because you think, oh, we have all this time, now the pace at which we do things will just become slower and we will just end up wasting a lot of time. But for me, I've actually learned to prioritize things uh, a lot more um, simply because I I find that there aren't that many things um, that truly, truly fulfill me. And so (laughs) through exploring (laughs) different avenues during this time, I, I've learned what things I really want to focus on and what I really don't need to focus on. Exactly.
1: And and so for you, that might be a matter of interest. But for some students, it might be a matter of need. Um, maybe mm-hmm. one subject comes more easily and another is is more difficult. Maybe not so difficult as to necessitate, like, an additional class. You know how sometimes people have to take an extra, like, lab class to sort of help them Mm -hmm. with their math classes. So the way the system is set up right now, you fall at, like, one of a tiny handful of different levels in whatever subject, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe you're in Algebra 2, or maybe you're in Remedial Algebra because you had trouble in Algebra 1. I mean, there are a fair number of options, but it's not enough. And if if every student could kind of tailor their needs in a more nuanced way, where it's like, well, I still have you know, just the same number of core classes, but I always get my English work done faster, and I just have to get some extra help with math because mm-hmm. taking a whole extra, um, like, remedial or, like, you know, additional course would be more of a time commitment than you need. And then that's when kids start to tune out.
2: hmm
0: Yeah. So so having that level of personalization that's, um, that's possible through virtual education would probably help people who are sort of in the in-between.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that ultimately, I, I tried to say this earlier, but – I think I need to say it again differently um, mm-hmm. We talk about how we're not just teaching you academics right we We want mm-hmm. to believe that school is also teaching you life skills, and I think that having more work uh, more more lessons more teaching um happening on a virtual platform is absolutely putting more responsibility in terms of time management on the student Mm -hmm. in a way that reflects what having a job will be like, what going to college will be like. I think that that shift from high school where you have people kind of holding your hand through everything, right? Like you have teachers who email you constantly or remind you because it's on the board and they're talking about it and it's online or they send you reminds. Um, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Having all that and then going to college or then going into the work world is usually a really difficult transition. And so now at least we're consistent with, in our school, using Google Classroom for everything. And so you don't have as many um modes of communication it's up to every student to check google classroom each day and that is a really important skill to
0: have yeah it's especially considering where our future as a society might be going um and and i want to talk about you know all these great projections into the future visions uh or whatever maybe somewhat speculative ideas about the future but first to focus in on on um purely using virtual mediums for communication between teachers and students. I also feel maybe there's less pressure on the student um, to to do exactly what the teacher says or to follow, follow in class um, since they're not there in person and since there's not that physical sort of pressure by being around someone. And perhaps that can be uh, a good and a bad thing. Um, what, do you think, <laughs> what do you think are the negative consequences of not having that same pressure and structure as you would get in person? I think I have to talk about the
1: positive first because that I'm okay. witnessing the positive consequences of it more in my online instruction. Um, that actually is what stands out to me. Um, mm-hmm yeah, students don't have the, the same opportunity for embarrassment,
2: right? <laughs>
1: it's more yeah. of a, and it depends on how you're teaching, right? You, you can still do Zoom where people are asking questions out loud or using the chat box, but I do feel like probably most classes now involve an increased amount of kind of one-on-one communication, like through Mm -hmm. the comments assignments in Google Classroom for instance and Mm -hmm. I do feel like my students take more risks this way which is awesome I feel like Mm -hmm. they're less hesitant I think also sometimes sometimes the social environment of the classroom um, can have negative consequences on academic performance not just because some people get distracted by their peers but sometimes it's Not cool to be doing your work, and I feel like my (laughs) students are are more uh, responsible about just doing what they're supposed to now that they're online than they are in the room where I'm there to prompt them. (laughs) It's really mm -hmm. strange.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting, and I, I think the fact that the positives stand out to you is really interesting as well, because generally when we talk about digital education and its consequences, we focus a lot on the negative. So I'm I'm definitely curious to see um, what other improvements you think digital education has made to student work ethic and student curiosity and, and, I guess, a sense of self-drivenness.
1: Well, I think that there's, there's something that at least I'm experiencing Um, good that is coming from teachers not really knowing how this works or what's going on. Um, Everyone's kind of confused at once, which builds camaraderie, and it also Mm -hmm. helps build um, a collaborative kind of learning environment, because I'm having to ask students, hey, what's working in your other classes? Um, and, And it seems like less of an authoritarian kind of arrangement
0: yeah I love
1: that (laughs) I mean granted I also feel like a very weak leader because I'm just struggling to figure out all the platforms but eventually eventually it will get better um I've definitely been like beating myself up a whole lot for not being able to teach as much content as I normally do or teach it as well as I think I do in person. Um, Mm -hmm. But I'm just having to set a lot of boundaries and that helps me be realistic about the boundaries of my students and what I can expect from them. It's it's Mm -hmm. just kind of, it's interesting. Like it really does ignite a kind of curiosity for me. And I, I hope that other people feel similarly that it's it's just a process of kind of finding our way through this together?
0: Yeah, I I definitely think so from all the people that I've talked to, um, as well as the fact that I think any time of crisis or any time of change uh, tends to reveal the inner workings of systems and also of yourselves, right, of ourselves and how we we Mm -hmm. like to learn, how we actually learn.
1: Yeah, yeah. And ultimately, um, I think that talking about the consequences long term for virtual learning is really important. But I think that there's an even clearer uh, future when it comes to how what we're doing now will affect face-to-face teaching. I can tell you right now that I'm already 10 times more organized than I've ever been and it's not yes. organized, I'm not organized enough to be doing virtual teaching but I'm a lot more organized than I've ever been doing you know face to face teaching and bringing that to the classroom with me is going to be so valuable
0: <laughs> yeah i can imagine and um and and i think that it's kind of counterintuitive as well you would think that virtual education requires less of the student and of the teacher because there's not as much direct, like, responsibility as in person, but from everyone I know and as well as myself, it really does require more responsibility and more understanding of how we work. Yeah.
1: Yeah, because what you're putting out there exists, right? It's not a moment that just passes and then it's over. It's not like, oh, I did a really bad job teaching that lesson to, um third period or whatever because um, if that good. happens it, it goes away <laughs> but if I'm recording a lecture I have to make sure it's pretty good before I actually post it so I end
0: up re-recording everything about 12 times which is exhausting yeah and I've also found that uh, teachers tend to be more concise when they're teaching online because of that because things exist forever in in the virtual <laughs> <laughs> so it's a yeah. huge favor
1: yeah but I, I, I want to go back to your original question which was about the problems with virtual learning because mm-hmm. it, that was all I could think about before school started and and I would say even the first few days of the first week that's where my head was and I just mm-hmm. couldn't stop going back to Something I heard years ago, um, let's see, this was probably ten, no, like nine, eight or nine years ago. And my aunt, who is a professor of family science, but Mm -hmm. she's also served as a dean for um, online schools. And mm-hmm. has has been um, she's been part of the uh, creation of a few different online colleges. And was oh, pretty. Cool. Yeah, I I really need to call her. I just have been too exhausted. <laughs> I imagine that she has been <laughs> in the same boat. But I remember her saying all those years ago, the best happen- the best learning happens online. And I was just sitting there. I think we were at an IHOP in Las Vegas. Where she lived at the time. And (laughs) I was thinking about the one online class I had taken in college, which was terrible. It was terrible. Mm -hmm. It was just like read these pages in the book, do this little online quiz. And then we had to actually go to a specific building and take a test, which was all multiple choice. And there was some really weak. Uh, effort to establish dialogue and discussion on some sort of mm-hmm. like blog chat thing uh, and it didn't work it was one of those things where to get your points you just had to like post something each week and nobody ever <laughs> yeah. read them nobody ever wrote back or anything and oh. I was really upset because it was it was a course that I was really interested in and had I been Mm -hmm. able to take it in person, I would have been asking a lot of questions. I would have been Mm -hmm. asking my professor for more resources to check out. And Mm -hmm. it just so happened that this professor wasn't interested in doing anything above and beyond for an online course, which is why I'm not telling you the name of the course, but, (laughs) um, (laughs) <laughs> but it was a real letdown for me, and I just thought after yeah. that, online learning is terrible, and and I've always loved discussion in the classroom, and so hearing yeah. my aunt say that the best learning happened online absolutely blew my mind, and I can't remember if I challenged her on it then, but she said it with so much certainty, and this is a really smart woman I really respect, so I just keep Playing that over in my head trying to figure out what that meant and and mm-hmm. what she meant by it then and what what she would say about it now. I
0: really should give her a call. Yeah, definitely. And I I think perhaps to make this more digestible for the audience as well, we should examine what learning really means and maybe what components of learning would happen better online and what components really need to be done in person. Because I feel like You know, with the Internet and all that information out there, uh, the acquisition of knowledge might happen better online where you have concise and professionally made videos to give you that. But obviously discussion and a lot of more creative and uh, relationship-based learning might need to happen. What do you think about the components?
1: Thank you, thank you for taking the interview in this direction, because now you're getting into theory of education, <laughs> yeah.
2: which
1: is is, an, is something that I'm very interested in, but I'm by no means an expert or anywhere close. So that means mm-hmm. I'll I'll talk about it in a way that you know any layperson can understand. But um, mm-hmm. what you're saying about knowledge being so accessible through the internet is absolutely true. Um I am going to take this opportunity to um, mention to you the name of a scholar, um, Paulo Freire. Um, I think hes I think he was from Brazil. I'm holding his book right now. Anyway, he wrote this book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And it is basically about, reimagining an education system a true public education system whose purpose is to empower people because if you look Mm -hmm. at the history of public education that's not necessarily been the goal all along and sometimes Mm -hmm. we're a little bit more geared towards that than others but um yeah he was from he was brazilian um and he he was actually um he did a lot of work educating adults, adults who, who worked, uh, working class adults. And Mm -hmm. um, one of, one of the concepts that he writes about a lot is the banking system of education. And so what he's really challenging is why, why do we, why do we think that, School is about depositing knowledge into your brain.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Does that make sense? How that's like banking? Like, yeah. here is information, we're going to deposit it in your mind and hope it sticks.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Is that really doing that much for our students? You can also look at Bloom's taxonomy, which is right, basically yeah. like one of pyramid, a hierarchy of the different kinds of, of learning, different levels of understanding. And rote knowledge like that is at the very bottom, right? You need knowledge
0: to, to do something like analysis. Just really quickly for our audience. So Bloom's Taxonomy, you guys can also look this up on the internet. Um, but one version of it, there are multiple versions. Um, it starts with the bottom level of remembering information, and then it goes up to understanding, then applying, analyzing, evaluating, and, and finally creating.
1: Exactly, that's the newer version. But we'll we'll just stick with that to to keep it simple. Um, I actually still attachment to the old version, but that's okay. But yeah, so those those higher levels, um, you have to have knowledge, but you have to be using that knowledge, processing that knowledge in complex ways. And the higher the level, the more complex the processing that you're doing with that information. And I think that that is where the challenge lies with virtual learning, is that we're not able to kind of manipulate, uh, to, to play with the facts enough, right? It's through conversation that people develop ideas. Right, smart mm-hmm. people talk to each other, and and then interesting things grow out of that. There's not a whole yeah. lot of innovation that occurs in a little, you know, one-person bubble. Mm-hmm. So, it, so that is the challenge: figuring out how to make dialogue possible,
0: meaningful dialogue. Yeah, and I think you know, this might be more minor, but I think there's also um, a benefit to having uh, having a dynamic environment. Um, when you're doing virtual school, you might sit in the same place every single day for hours. Um, and there is that element of dynamism that I think also helps create ideas um, and stimulate oh, the brain. So
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, so much of like psychology and neuroscience has addressed this sort of thing in recent decades, right? So, like how mm-hmm. exercise really helps with learning yeah. and memory.
0: Yeah. So, going back really quickly to Paulo, Paulo. Just out of curiosity, so he challenged this idea of uh, a banking education system. Um, what was his alternative, and when? When did he? When was he? Um, active in his career just out of curiosity. He he really gained traction in the
1: field in the nineteen sixties when, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of systems were being critiqued all around the world. Um, mm-hmm. and he was he was not only criticizing the method of education, but the who the mouthpiece. Like who is ultimately, you know, creating this system and who's deciding oh. what is delivered through it. Interesting. And Interesting. I, and he was yeah, and so like a lot of it actually has to do with politics. So mm-hmm. supposedly there was a democratic system in Brazil at the time, but people's mm-hmm. votes were just bought. Like uh-huh. seriously politicians would pay people to vote for them. And people would do it because they didn't know better. And so he was interested in promoting literacy, which is a skill, which makes it actually, you know, more sophisticated learning than just the like banking of knowledge kind of thing. So he had to start with, with literacy. But then ultimately it was about critical thinking, getting people to take that information that they're able to read and really question who is, who is going to, you know, represent me well in government. It's a dangerous cycle, especially given that humans are creatures of habit and systems
0: are even slower to change than people. Mm-hmm. And he was working before the start of the Internet, too. So I guess he might have tackled it from a philosophical standpoint. But he was definitely ahead of the curve um, in, I guess, predicting the outdated system of just distributing or regurgitating information.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, another kind of spin on this is that with the Internet, do we even need to be memorizing that much information? Like, <laughs> what's the point of memorizing dates? Like, having some kind of working knowledge of of names and dates, like, and geography. Of course, of course, you do need some knowledge, but the extensive memorization of facts that our parents and grandparents had to perform, it mm-hmm. it seems kind of pointless when the world is at your fingertips and so why aren't we devoting more of our mental energy to higher level thinking why aren't we teaching students how to think critically here here are a bunch Mm -hmm. of facts what do you do with them let's teach
0: it like problem solving yeah yeah and i i think we have a you know a slight shift toward concepts You have equation sheets that are available so you don't have to memorize equations for AP exams. But at the same time, even the concept level um, might not be enough in the future um, because concepts are are sort of a form of information that are easily accessible in the Internet. Um,
1: Right. And so then ultimately you have um, the ability to critique things
2: being necessary
1: Mm -hmm. and the ability to create things, right? So that's where those top levels, analysis, synthesis, evaluation, and creation. Um, Can you actually step outside of that box and build a whole new box? I mean, there's going to be a box. You're always going to have a box. But let's build some
0: different ones. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. And I I don't want to get too speculative but at the same time, I think it's interesting to look to the far future and think where we might end up in 10, 20 years as a sort of a way to frame your perspective about the present and situate yourself in history, I suppose. So where do you think with all this new technology coming out with um, with language models? If you've heard of GPT-3 that recently came out, it's a, it's a nice language model that can – it's basically Siri, but 10 times, 20 times better – and then with also with Neuralink in the works, where do you think um, education will end up in the far future? Ooh,
1: that is hard. I've never been much of a sci-fi person, and um, yeah. I definitely don't dig holograms. But I if If I'm just speaking generally in a in an abstract philosophical way, I think mm-hmm. that ultimately imagination is going to be the heart and soul of education in the future um i should I should actually expand that and say experience and imagination, for instance, in my art history classes, I feel like. Videos are so powerful when it comes to helping students learn about the cave paintings at Lascaux or Chauvet. Mm-hmm. Um, being seeing what it's like to walk around the landscape, approach that cave, like experience walking into that space and how far mm-hmm. back you have to go before you get to the caverns where the paintings are made, it provides mm-hmm. such a, a rich understanding of, of why those things were made, how they were made in the first place. And that kind of experiential learning, it, it's going to stick with you a lot longer than a bunch of memorized facts. And ultimately yeah. that's going to make it more useful to you because if you have if you have that kind of knowledge, which it is knowledge, right? It's visual knowledge. It's sense knowledge, um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: sensory knowledge. You can manipulate that in more ways than you can manipulate just fact. And,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that's where imagination comes in. Maybe, maybe it's through um, simulations that do occur through digital means or maybe Maybe it's through our dreams. I mean, who knows? (laughs)
2: But I think
1: experience and imagination, um, offer a lot when it comes to innovating. Um, Mm -hmm. plenty of scientists have, have written about things coming to them in dreams and that's how they ended up
0: developing, you know, world changing theories. Yeah, that's interesting. Absolutely. And, um, Maybe it's like we're getting closer and closer to reality um, as as we experience it in education you know you start from facts things are things that are condensed into language or numbers and then you start to get video and audio and these different components coming in and eventually the full experience, maybe some sort of virtual reality um, explain these caves and different scientific concepts in real life, quote, unquote, although through simulation will end up. Which
1: creates a ton of opportunity for school not just to be where you're being trained, but where you're actually contributing. You know, I think that a lot of students, I think there are a lot of brilliant minds that tune out because they're told that they have to spend all of these years just kind of taking in information and learning the rules of the game and all, anything you do, anything you write, any theory you come up with, all of that is just practice. And then maybe, maybe, maybe you end up being a specialist in some particular field, you'll be able to contribute to it. That is so sad. It's such a waste. It's discouraging. No wonder kids get tired of school and feel like a lot of it is pointless. A lot of it is pointless. But if if it was truly engaging, if we were truly engaged with the world in a way where students had opportunities to contribute, which that is happening when it comes Mm -hmm. to even fields like archaeology. There's all kinds of like, um, what do you call it? Not open source, but um, there's work being done where satellite imagery is made accessible to anyone and everyone, and and then just ordinary people, um, crowdsource, right? like crowdsource archaeology is starting to occur online.
0: Yeah, it's incredible what sorts of things you can find online. So many databases, you know, open source code as well. Um, and obviously tons of educational information can learn tons of things online. I don't know if I'd say, like, everything there is to learn, but I feel like eventually... Uh, we might reach that point where we have maybe ninety five percent of the world's um, knowledge <laughs> <culture>. <laughs> <laughs> no. we
1: don't, oh my gosh well, actually, you're helping me this conversation is really good for me um you're challenging me to think a lot right now i I think that um yes, the internet can be this wonderful repository of knowledge. It can be a platform for communication. Our, our challenge, and maybe because the internet can, can do these things that we've in the past had to use our own mental power for at a pretty taxing rate, at a pretty consistent mm-hmm. pace, um if the internet can do those things for us that frees up our minds to then solve the organizational problems of the internet right it's harder than it should be for me to find the people and the information that i want and and mm-hmm. those are the problems that you know are are going to be really important to prioritize moving forward it's a matter of efficiency
0: yeah exactly and it's also there are plenty of you know dystopian questions surrounding control of the Internet and eventually maybe human Internet or human computer interface um, and who controls that. Um, But we probably leave that conversation for a later date because there are some some more interesting topics (laughs) that I want to get to. So we've talked a lot about the education system and what impact the pandemic may have on the education system, Um, but what about the world at large? What do you think uh, will change in the world at large immediately after we get out of quarantine and maybe sort of in the long run as well?
1: Not enough. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I... I mean, you, you know my... You're familiar with my worldview. Um, yeah. I think that there's a lot of waste in this world. I think there's a lot of wasted material, a lot of wasted energy, both um, in terms of uh, like electricity, fossil fuels, so forth, uh, human energy, human talent innovation Mm -hmm. Um, uh, just you know commercial capitalism corporate capitalism promotes (laughs) waste it does Um, Mm -hmm. and I would like to believe that people have learned how much they can actually do without from this Mm -hmm. I know if that likely to happen. Um, This is not something, this is not a popular view and maybe some people will hate me for saying this but I think that recessions can be really good things Mm -hmm. because they help individuals and society as a whole grapple with what Our priorities really are. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, um, a lot of the forces that dominate our society in contemporary America kind of tell us to uh, flip back to consumption as quickly as we can. Mm
2: -hmm. But
1: there is. I think there's still a a glimmer of hope um, when it comes to American ingenuity and innovation and uh, this whole idea of, like, rugged individualism. You know, if we -hmm. we really looked back at that, which, you know, all all of those things can be problematic in a whole host of ways, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think that Trying to survive as an island is really the best for anyone. I think that we do better together. But um, if if we kind of go back to this very personal perspective of what each of us really needs and wants, we could actually live much more meaningful lives. Um, okay. Change is really difficult, you know, when, when there are whole buildings that have been created for a specific purpose.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When that purpose becomes obsolete, uh, it's, it's hard to change that, you know. A family business going out of business, that's hard change. Um, mm-hmm. A corporation going out of business, putting lots of people out of work, got even harder. And, and we're seeing this tension between the struggling population and our uh, political leaders. But it's really strange to, to watch the, the push and pull. It feels like it's, it's mostly inertia, right? We want as little change as possible at any given time.
0: Yeah, you, you bring up many very good points um and let's go back for a second to what you said about recession being good i i like all of the points that you've brought up in this conversation so far because um they tend to be contrarian and when people talk <laughs> about obviously they think it's obviously they think it's a negative thing but similar to the way um in stories where characters face tragedies and they face death, I agree. I think recession, um, as well as sort of a global crisis, can reveal well, the things. Well life
1: would be boring without those things, right? Without misery and death and loss <laughs> and everything. You know, it's it's kind of like um the beginning of Anna Karenina all happy families are happy in the same way. And then something about it's the unhappy families that are interesting, right? We wouldn't want to read a book about people who just live a totally peachy life all the time.
0: Yeah. And I like the idea that during times of crises, what we really care about uh, tends to surface. And so... Well, here,
1: here's what y'all need to learn from this. This is what everybody needs to learn from this. But this is the advantage... I have as a millennial who graduated from college when there were hardly any jobs. Mm-hmm. And you all, you know, coming of age in this peculiar time where we don't really know what's ahead. And and it's good to be a little bit scared about that because it makes you think of alternatives to your plan A. And <laughs> one, of, one of the most interesting things about my life is that Plan A changed a million times. I'm not yeah. doing anything that was ever a Plan A, and it turns out I'm really glad Plan B was the right plan for me. And mm-hmm. and so there's this this sense of control where you know in school we think that we're on a track. You know you do this and you do this and then you go to college and you do this and you get an internship and you get a job. No, there is no guarantee. And and when we're in a rougher financial patch on a large scale that is clear to everyone, that there are no guarantees. And one of the worst logical fallacies uh, in terms of its negative effects on all of society is the expectation that the future will resemble the past.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So dangerous, right? People. People think, well, the stock market has always gone up. It's always recovered. It's always kept climbing. So it will keep doing that. You don't know that. (laughs) The stock market's only been around like a little over a century. The stock market as we know it, um, there were other systems before that. Every empire falls, right? I'm sure that they're very comfortable for... (laughs) For a long time in Rome, I'm sure they were comfortable even as it was starting to crumble because nobody likes to accept change, even when it's necessary.
0: I really like that connection you make. I mean, the reason that, I think the reason that tragedy and um, and chaos facilitate change is because there's no longer a status quo that will sort of give you security. There's, there's no longer... Um, one path that you know will work out. And so more and more individuals are willing to take risks or try different things that don't seem like risks anymore because there's no guarantee.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the other thing is resilience. Having Mm -hmm. to live through times of hardship makes you more resilient. You learn that you can survive, but you also learn, oh, I'm actually. I actually have these skills that are worth money to other people, and they weren't what I was planning on using to make money and survive. But they matter, and and maybe that means you have uh, some skill and you need to develop it further. But but just having that understanding that flexibility is essential to survival, um, so survival and fulfillment. You know, maybe you think that one thing is going to be what gives you gratification in life and the world no longer values it. You lose that job or whatever it might be and you have to come up with something else and it it may end up being a blessing in disguise.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it makes people more creative in the way they address things when there's not something, a direct set of, Uh, rules fed to them or procedures fed to them through whatever it is, work, education. We all sort of have to come up with new methods to do things during these times. Exactly.
1: There's some adage along the lines of limitations breed creativity. I know I'm not getting it right, but you know what I mean.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And
0: I think when it comes to um, how much change will actually happen, obviously there's no way we can predict this, but maybe it's a combination of um, how much inertia we have going and how structured and um, effective our old systems were, as well as how much of a cultural shift we're experiencing and uh, how much individuals are now more willing to think for themselves and take risks for themselves. But who knows? The future is...
1: Well, it's interesting that you use the word cultural because I think that expands the conversation quite a bit, you know, when you think about everything that's going on in the news that isn't necessarily directly tied to coronavirus. I think that the moral of the story is the same. Change happens. Change has to happen. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, that was a great overview of what sort of of our analysis, I guess, our understanding of what's happened so far and what might happen in the future. But just to bring it back to you and me as two humans, how do you think the pandemic has affected who you are? Oh. <laughs>
2: um,
0: <laughs> I think it's made me a lot
1: pickier about the company I keep, mm-hmm. um, spending all this time alone has made me a better friend to the people who live far away, the people who I know are worth, you know, investing my time and love and energy into. Um, mm-hmm. I think I used to make myself go out and be social in ways that I didn't really even enjoy. And I only now realize how much I didn't enjoy them <laughs> now that I don't even have that option. I. I really don't miss it, and and so that's gonna help me um, moving forward. Once those opportunities start to come back, um, just because it's there doesn't mean I have to do it. And there's there's something amazing about the pandemic when it comes to leveling the playing field for different personality types. Interesting. You're I'm introverted who has had to live in an extrovert's world. And I've had to fake being an extrovert and play by extrovert rules. And I think any introvert would say similar things. And then all of a sudden, the world shuts down. We're supposed to stay home. And I'm fine. And Mm -hmm. if I get on social media, I see all these people complaining about it. And it's like good. It's your turn to suffer. It's your turn to not fit the world that you have to exist in. Because it's been I've I've been having to do that for a long time. A huge, huge proportion of our population has been having to do that for a long time. And it's just kinda nice now that it's the other people who are having to adjust to a different way of living and communicating.
0: That is a really interesting insight. I never thought about leveling the playing field in terms of personality and perhaps that extends to, you know, the way people learn or the way people work as well. Uh, that can probably be under the umbrella of personality.
1: Yeah, yeah, so cool. I definitely agree. Um, And and even things that maybe aren't learning or work, like I think about um, on social media, sometimes the people who really flourish with an online presence, maybe in blogging or vlogging or, you know, any of that stuff, a lot of times they're actually really shy people in real life.
2: Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Yeah. And so
1: there's just a different kind of opportunity. And it's it's being expanded now.
0: That is really, really interesting.
1: Here's the other thing. This pandemic is the perfect punishment for our crime as a society. I am a millennial who is really like an old person at heart. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't really like being on the phone or computer too much. Even, like, as a kid, I mean, we didn't have YouTube back then, but when I was 13, I decided I was done watching TV, and I just never watched TV again until really just a couple years ago. Um, It bothers me how, I mean, everybody's heard this. Everybody knows this. It's a little creepy how much everybody just lives on their devices, right? That thing where you go into a restaurant and you see a table of people, and they're not talking to each other. They're all on their phones and they're on social media, right? So that's supposed to be social, or they're texting, but that's very anti-social compared to talking to people who are sitting with you. And and so, yeah. as a teacher, that's always been the thing that dri- driven me crazy. It's just how addicted. <laughs> students are to their phones and yeah. now it's like well you wanted to tune out of reality you wanted to distance yourself <laughs> from the people who are there in real life
0: now that's all you've got so there yeah perfect kind of crime it's definitely got a sort of um aesthetic <laughs> the the way that things work out i, I wonder if that's this is off topic, but I wonder if teachers will use sort of that reverse psychology in their punishments. Like, if a kid's on their phone too much, just send them to be on their phone for... for- <laughs> You're only <Yeah>. in virtual. <laughs> well, yeah, actually,
1: that's, that is happening a little bit. You know, there are a lot of kids who, I mean you were talking about being happy coming back to school and you're a fully virtual student, but there Mm -hmm. have been so many students, even ones who are really worried about the virus, who Mm -hmm. have just been so eager to be in the school building with other people again. And, you know, if other people are getting to do that and you're off on your own,
2: that's not fun.
1: I mean, I think that this this could lead to us developing a more effective and fair and um, positive replacement for things like suspension.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Because here's another thing: Uh, it's almost like the inverse of what I said about the perfect punishment. Uh, It's also kind of the perfect cure for one of the problems I've. Been very surprised with as a teacher. I will never forget how overwhelmed I was my first year when I was trying to just come up with lessons for all my students for, you know, regular class. And then I was constantly getting bombarded with emails about this student is in ISS, this student is in OSS, this student is in JDC, this student is sick. I'm going to go on a cruise for a week. And, and so I was supposed to provide meaningful material for these students to learn remotely. And it was frustrating because it was only for usually one, maybe two students. So why should I put that much time in it, right? I can't, I can't mm-hmm. draw that much away from what's serving most of my kids. And so now I've got a stockpile of stuff,
2: you know, mm-hmm. or, or
1: like, if the norm is teaching virtually and the face-to-face interaction is really just considered an enhancement of that, then Mm -hmm. that kind of solves that problem.
0: Well, I'm glad that the whole virtual system, I guess, is easier for you guys. I I always imagined it might be a lot of, you know... Oh, no, no,
1: no, 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 no. Let me be very clear. This is the hardest thing I've ever had to do. This is the hardest my job has ever been. This is the hardest any job I've ever done has ever been. Okay? These two weeks have been the hardest two work weeks of my whole life by Mm -hmm. far. Way harder than my very first week teaching. Way harder. Okay? Having to accommodate all the different permutations of Virtual and face-to-face learning that all my students have, and you know, then there's the normal back-to-school stuff where schedules are changing and that kind of thing. Huh. I can't even explain to you how absolutely consuming and exhausting it is. It's killing me. It's killing me. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I I can't imagine um, how much of a workload on top of everything else that normal people are dealing with in a pandemic. right? definitely can't imagine how physical that must be for, for all types of educators and administrators and, and frontline workers. So students, yeah. definitely um, the understanding of your teachers and try to make things as easy as possible for them.
1: Yeah, especially if they're being nice to you. I mean, no, be nice to all your teachers, but we as teachers, <laughs> We have to give a lot of grace to our students this year. That's not, that's not optional. We have to, okay? Mm-hmm. Then, you know, most of us, let's hope all of us also kind of bring another degree of that just because it's who we are, right? We're just showing compassion mm-hmm. because it's natural for us to be compassionate towards our students.
0: Right.
2: Please yeah.
0: please please students. Show compassion to your teachers because we are struggling.
1: We don't want to admit how hard it is in front of you because that makes us seem like weak leaders. Um I personally personally I'm pretty comfortable doing that, but not everybody is. This mm-hmm. is hard. Thing. Yeah. I was thinking about the the difficulties, um, or the shortcoming of trying to teach virtually. And for me, I think that the biggest thing is community. Um, I take a lot of pride in my ability to establish community in the classroom. Um, mm-hmm. my, my classes, I mean, at art classes, they tend to be some of the most diverse in the whole building, right? I have a variety mm-hmm. of group levels. I have people from all different interests, different cultural backgrounds. Um, I would say that the like the the racial diversity in my classes tends to be a little bit more representative of the whole school than, for instance, I don't know other AP classes. I don't want to pick on any one of them, but right i ha i have I have these awesome groups of students where everybody ends up forming a kind of family, and I do take pride in my ability to foster that kind of community. Uh, yep. I make sure in the classroom that everybody knows everybody else. They know each other's names. They know a little bit about them. They've, they've interacted. They've talked. They've worked together on some assignment. And that is one of the hardest things about virtual teaching is that I don't know how to do that now. And I think it's a really important form of motivation. I mean, I think it's important to... My students' well-being, my well-being, I think it is an incredibly valuable learning tool,
2: mm-hmm.
1: because, because that's another thing about um, the banking system of, of education is that it doesn't put nearly enough stock into the human beings who are participating in it. You yeah. all aren't just receptacles for knowledge. You have so much that you bring to the classroom. Your experiences and perspectives, even if you don't have any disciplinary knowledge of, you know, say art history for my class, you mm-hmm. have a lot to offer. And I just, I just worry that, um, because that one aspect of my teaching that I consider maybe my greatest strength is kind of jeopardized by by virtual platform learning um, that that I won't be anywhere near as effective as I'm used to being. And I would and perhaps, you know, like yeah. to continue to improve every year, but I feel like this is an enormous setback. Right, I feel you. I
2: definitely feel you. And I can, I can definitely
0: To Ms. Conway's expertise, I guess, in creating a sense of community last year, the year before last year, I think it was um, our pre-art history class was incredibly tight-knit. Everyone knew everyone, and we would always have great conversations and talk outside of the class as well. And we were we were were like people who didn't
2: necessarily
1: know each other otherwise.
2: That's important. Okay. We have to. You, this this
1: this podcast is called Undivided. You know, like everybody has to do that work to create an undivided FHS, and and we're gonna have to really work hard to find new methods to do that in this new way that we do
2: school.
0: Right, and just I guess a word of consolation. Um, in the short term, uh, this sense of community might be. It might take more effort to resurrect it, and maybe we can't resurrect it to the full degree that we had before, but we are exploring so many different outlets and some new methods that I think will enhance our sense of community um, once this pandemic is over, and especially well, once we're and not
2: confined
0: to physical limitations. And once again...
1: It's it's an opportunity, you know. Change is necessary. In the old way, it's hard to let go of, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best way. It's very possible that we'll we'll be better at creating community, teaching online. I'm not sure. It'll maybe we can at least get to a point where we do better in some ways, though maybe not as well in others. But um, for instance, with the Padlet, but I've used for my classes. Um, I've had, especially, a lot of virtual students tell me that they really like having kind of a, a discussion board, like a place where conversation can just sort of live for the class, and yeah. it helps them feel engaged with their classmates who are in the building or or not in the building.
0: Yeah, and that goes beyond the quarantine. You know, even after that, we'll be virtually connected. When we're not in class in person, and so um, it it really does uh, add positive benefit to education, I think, and always yeah. always with improvement with innovation, there's probably going to be a valley um, in in which your the quality of your new product or your new method is not comparable to your old one but the idea is something has fundamentally changed. You've made some sort of fundamental discovery that can increase your uh, rate of improvement mm-hmm. beyond that old product. So I yes. think. Yes.
1: I think. Well, well and and here, this- here's one more thing that just occurred to me, yeah. but yeah. Uh, the kind of <laughs> semi anonymity of of the online platforms we use, I think. Mm-hmm would actually give us a real head start when it comes to building community among people who wouldn't gravitate toward one another on their own, perhaps.
2: You know, I yeah. think about
1: these biases that we all have um, when it comes to maybe how a person looks, how a person dresses, how they right. talk, who they hang out with. But if if you're seeing that person out you know, uh, um, removed from their social context and you're seeing them just for them and what they say and write and post or, you know, whatever in the online platform, then you realize that you have more in common with them than than you might, you know, if you were looking at each other.
0: Yeah, that's a Um, great paradox of the Internet, I think, is that Uh, On one hand, it seems like a lot of superficial things like the way you look can be emphasized, but on the other hand, there is an element of anonymity and really getting to the core of who people are that happens through the Internet, through virtual spaces.
1: Yeah, yeah. Weirdly, Facebook has gotten pretty good about this. I mean, obviously there are photos there, but um, as As an old person, I do have Facebook. Um, You know, it was, like, really hip to have Facebook in high school. It was still in, like, beta testing mode or something, so you had to get an invite. It was a little bit exclusive. But, you know, once everybody's mom got on Facebook, it kind of got out of control and then uncool. It's it's been through several different waves, let's say. But... um, I think those of us who, who have chosen to stick with it have had to work really hard at curating our, our content, curating what's in our news feed so that we're not overwhelmed with like trash that makes us unhappy. But mm-hmm. it it has become, and maybe y'all can talk to your parents about this, it has become an interesting place where we form relationships with People who are friends of friends, sometimes people whose names we've heard, but we haven't met them personally, but they're, you know, commenting on somebody else's post, whether it's about just local issues, politics, philosophical things, you know, whatever. Um, it's it's kind of cool to meet people in real life and realize, oh, I've actually conversed with you online. You're really cool. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I uh, this is last the last tangent I'm going to go on but um I think that the internet as a whole and virtual spaces as a whole they're really nice grounds for experimentation and for society to sort of get a taste of what might be coming um ahead of time. So for example, we we've had we've had YouTube as a vector of education. We've had these different GitHub communities. Um, and we've had all these sort of micro-experiments happen before, far before any of the pandemic and quarantine stuff hit. And so you really see the same source of ideas, the idea of an- anonymity, the idea of facades online, all of those being explored in these micro-experiments um, in the Internet. And I think that's just really nice that we get to... We get to detach ourselves somewhat from all the resource limitations and um, system limitations of the real world and explore different things in the Internet and see what might work and what might not work before we actually have the necessity to apply it in reality. Good.
1: See, this is, this is why I teach. It's so much more interesting to talk to you and most young people than it is <laughs> to you know, try to be like a normal adult. I feel that. I'm sort of observing these interesting insights that you're having, and clearly this is stuff you've thought about a lot. Maybe you've talked about or maybe you've, you know, found some discourse (laughs) on the Internet about discourse on the Internet. But um, it really drives home for me the importance of providing opportunities for my students to have conversations like this with one another. And so I guess I want to ask you, first of all, if you're getting that anywhere so far, and I know that, you know, because you are in my class, I've kind of asked this stuff before, but uh, as a student, what advice do you have for teachers when it comes to making our classes as truly valuable as we possibly can.
0: Thank you for asking that. Um, so, let's see, it's, it's a tricky question. I think it's different for everyone, obviously. Um, I'm incredibly lucky to be part of the newspaper where I can have conversations like this and interview teachers and fellow students um, about their thoughts About the world at large. Uh, And so I think that's an incredible outlet, um, as well as any other sort of student publication or student production is a really useful resource for anyone who is looking for more interaction during these times. That's in terms of advice to students. Um, And obviously, just creating opportunity where there isn't necessarily opportunity is a huge part of it as well. I think a lot of teachers would be Happy to have conversations, or perhaps fellow students would happy to be happy to have conversations like these, or you could start your own podcast, etc in terms of to teachers um, i don't want to you know overburden you guys because obviously there's a ton on your plate during this time, but I think that I think that having perhaps a zoom call once in a while. Uh, purely for discussion purposes um, and and something that people prepare for ahead of time in a format Mm -hmm. that's almost like a podcast where it's sort of free-flowing conversation, maybe a couple of guiding questions, uh, but really trying to push the boundaries of the content in the curriculum I think would would help students some um, because you're getting hardcore curriculum stuff across in in your normal assignments, but to have conversations that really pique the interest of students and explore what they're passionate about, that I think will be powerful in motivating them to do other work and in creating a relationship and community in your class um, where they're now held accountable by the relationship as opposed to the the rules that they're supposed to do work. You know, I, I think it's a worthwhile investment um to do yeah. that. But yeah. um, um let me let me put a qualifier on that. But obviously this is just from a student's perspective and my experience with the traditional school with teaching the traditional school system is absolutely zero. So, you know, mm-hmm. take it with a grain of salt and apply it um as you can.
1: Well um you you show great respect for teachers uh in your and your response to that but um What if if I rephrase the question just a little bit and change it to what would you like to see less of and what would you like to see more of? And I think that everything you just said answers the second half of the question, right? The more kind of opportunity for uh, open-ended, free-flowing discussion. Is there Mm -hmm. anything that you could see um, kind of being de-emphasized from from the way school has gone so far?
2: Hmm. Let me think about that, works. or or just
1: the way that you know classes have been taught historically. Maybe maybe it's too close. To, you know, we haven't spent enough time in the present school year to know
2: yet.
0: Yeah. Okay. I I really like the way you phrase that question um, because because it's sort of two pronged like. When we're talking about the education system, before the pandemic happened, if we ever brought up the education system, it's a difficult conversation because there's not the openness to change. Um, and obviously we have an understanding that change is supposed to take a long time. But right now in this context, when we're talking about what could historically have been done better, I think it's the perfect opportunity because um, we don't really have to qualify our statements with, oh, but obviously, you know, the system's going to weigh you down and the system's going to take time to change because people now have the ability to take some level of risk, although, of course, they're probably confined by, you know, administration's requirements and all these different burdens. Anyways, um, getting to yeah. getting to um, my point with what... I think, to, uh, to, to how, how I think we can diverge from what's been done traditionally in education during this time. Um, I think that a lot of teachers are already doing this, but the lecture-based format can be more outsourced to um, people on the internet who have professionally produced videos
2: to deliver content.
0: And, okay. and the, maybe the majority of the time can be spent in interaction. Um, but mainly the outsourcing of content delivery, I think, would lift a burden off of a lot of teachers' shoulders. Absolutely. Um, and, well, and it, and it does kind of
1: depend. Um, I, I mean, once again, you're beautifully cautious with the way that you phrase all of this. Uh, one thing that I think everybody should know uh, is that College Board is is creating tons of curriculum along those lines, essentially lecture materials for all of the AP courses. And so we've kind of got canned curriculum for that. Um, for other courses, it's, it's actually a lot harder. I think that in some ways it's harder to teach non-AP classes than AP classes this year, well, I think in some, in some ways that's true every year, but this year in particular, when it comes to finding the right resources, finding the right, um, you know, videos and things to, to share with students, um, having to do all of that on your own, having to hunt for it can sometimes be as much or even more work than it is to just create your own content. So it's a little tricky there, but I, it's good yeah. to know that y- at least you personally are good with the um,
2: the pre-produced stuff.
0: Yeah, and uh, I'll just, I think I, it took me a second to sort of think of what I wanted to say here, but along with the outsourcing of content um content delivery, I guess, you know, for certain classes. Um, I think there's also an element of um, blurring the line between student and teacher that we mentioned before in this conversation, Um, but that could be a useful perspective for a lot of teachers. You know, this is a collaborative effort, and you can really really tap into um, student talent, and student familiarity with technology and all the cool things students have been doing on the Internet, um, all the cool ways they've created communities through Discord servers, um, through group chats, whatever it is. You can really uh, take a look at
1: You're so good at plugging Discord.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love Discord. Oh, my goodness. Um, (laughs) <laughs> it's it's really awesome, like all the different music bots you can add and polls and everything. Anyways, so, yeah, I think it's – I think, it's, I think um, at least from my own experience with, with also teaching some online courses, um, you can really utilize what students have to offer to lessen your own workload and also to enhance the experience. And, and then beyond that, the fact that students are getting to lead – um, and inspire their peers is going to motivate them um, if they have more control over their education. Um, obviously, yeah. so I think, I think both outsourcing uh, and capitalizing on student talent are are great ways uh, that we can improve on the traditional educational methods uh, that we've used. Yeah, beautifully said. Any other messages you have for the students? Ooh. Um, Well, congratulations for making it this far, first
1: of all. Um, Good job. I mean, not congratulations, but good work. Um, Thank you for the patience that you've shown so far. Um, My experience has been... Pretty good in the classroom. I feel like students have been um, very respectful of you know rules due to COVID, as well as just you know other classroom expectations. So I definitely appreciate that. Um, those of you who are being reckless about sitting too close to each other and taking off your masks at lunch or whatever, though, y'all need to get your act together because it's not cool. It's not cute, and nobody deserves to get sick especially because of anybody else being irresponsible Mm -hmm. Um, on a more positive note i'm really impressed with how well my students are advocating for themselves and reaching out to me when they need to uh i have never seen such good email etiquette from students as I've seen this year. All of a sudden, everybody's learned how to start an email with a salutation and, you know, (laughs) sign it at the end, and it's it's bewildering, but delightful, so
0: keep it up. Well said, and um, on that note, thank you so much, Ms. Conway. For joining us on FHS Undivided, and we hope to have you back sometime. You have some really great insight into education and the world at large.
1: Well, you know, I have plenty to say. Thanks yeah. for, <laughs> for asking for my input. Um, I hope I said something interesting or useful.